This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is New Dark Age, Technology and the End of the Future by James Bridle. As the world around us increases in technological complexity, our understanding of it diminishes. Underlying this trend is a single idea, the belief that our existence is understandable through computation, and that more data is enough to help us build a better world. In reality, we are lost in a sea of information, increasingly divided by fundamentalism, simplistic narratives, conspiracy theories, and post-factual politics. Meanwhile, those in power use our lack of understanding to further their own interests. Despite the apparent accessibility of information, we're living in a new dark age, from rogue financial systems to shopping algorithms, from artificial intelligence to state secrecy. We no longer understand how our world is governed or presented to us. The media is filled with unverifiable speculation, much of it generated by anonymous software while companies dominate their employees through surveillance and the threat of automation. In his brilliant new work, leading artist and writer James Bridle surveys the history of art, technology, and information systems, and reveals the dark clouds that gather over our dreams of the digital sublime. New Dark Age, Technology and the End of the Future, by James Bridle, out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. I've been meaning to do a show on the civil war in Syria for quite a long time. And one reason that I haven't, I think, is because it's hard to know precisely what to think about such a bloody disaster that the U.S. and the Assad regime and so many other forces in so many different ways have done so much to create that has come to involve multiple regional powers, along with Russia, and also an anarcho-socialist-inspired feminist Kurdish army backed by U.S. air power, taking on the Islamic State. All the while, Syrians continue to suffer and to die, while various actors treat the conflict with cold instrumentality, as a proxy for their own geopolitical ends. Meanwhile, huge numbers of Syrian refugees languish in neighboring countries, and the even much smaller number who have made their way to the United States have been utilized by a resurgent far right who blame ordinary Syrians for violence that in fact is historically rooted in the colonial operations of those very same countries that now insist on keeping the refugees out. My guest today is Asla Bali, who has written a lot on Syria with dig super guest Aziz Rana. Their recent essay is in the Boston Review entitled Remember Syria? They also just published a follow-up to that essay, responding to their critics. I've included links to both in the show notes. Before we get rolling, this podcast is supported by podcast listeners like you, making contributions at patreon.com slash the dig. If you're not hooking us up yet, please do so now and ensure this podcast's long-term existence at p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. We've got a weekly newsletter for contributions of $5 a month, $10, and I'll send you Jacobin's The ABCs of Socialism 
or Assad Hader's Mistaken Identity. $20 or more, and I have a lot of great lefty books to send. Also, we have a live dig event on the left response to the climate crisis coming up in Brooklyn on August 17th at 7 p.m. at Verso Books. I've put details in the show notes. Okay, here's Asla Bali, a professor of law and the faculty director of the Promise Institute for Human Rights at the UCLA School of Law. Her research interests center on two fields, comparative law of the Middle East and public international law, with a focus on the intersection of international human rights and the laws of war. This is a long interview, so we've split it in two. We're posting the first half today and the second half in a few days. And one quick note, this interview was recorded on August 7th, before Assad's forces began airstrikes on Idlib province, ahead of a possible full-scale assault. Asla Bali, welcome to The Dig. Thanks so much for having me. I want to start by asking, what is the current state on the ground of a Syrian civil war that has become so complex, so multi-sided, and so brutal? It seems that the Assad regime is firmly in power, that ISIS has lost its geographic caliphate, that other rebel groups still hold territory in Idlib province in the country's northwest, and that forces aligned with the U.S. and Turkey control large amounts of territory in other parts of the north as well. Yeah, that's basically a very accurate picture. So there are really two remaining pockets of rebel-held territory, although one is um, in the midst of falling at the moment under intense attack by the Assad regime and its backers, um, which is in uh, Dara Kunetra, which is... Um, you know, the area in which we've been seeing fighting at the Israeli-Jordanian border uh, over the last week and or two weeks in the southwest. But otherwise, um, Idlib is basically the remaining rebel-held territory, uh, and it's actually a pretty small area. It constitutes about less than 5% of Syrian territory, but is currently holding something like 3.5 million people, depending on whose estimate you rely on, nearly half of whom are internally displaced people. And I think one of the major diplomatic issues at the moment is deterring the Assad regime from undertaking a major military campaign there on the sort of magnitude of the one that we've seen in the Southwest, which would produce a humanitarian catastrophe probably larger than any we've seen so far in any single operation in the war. Uh, And the rebels that are there are a mix of different um, opposition groups, ranging from those that the United States has backed from the outset, like the Free Syrian Army, to others that are uh, political Islamists, to those that are uh, towards the Al-Qaeda end of the spectrum. And there's still a very limited, modest presence of Islamic State forces as well. Uh, for example, over the at the end of last week, Israel and Jordan claimed to have killed some Islamic State fighters trying to cross out of the Golan. Um, and there are reported to be sleeper cells of various kinds around the country, but especially around Idlib. And then, as you mentioned, there's the entire northeastern region of the country, the Syrian Kurdish region, 
which is often referred to as Rojava, which is relatively autonomous from the Assad regime and also from the opposition groups that I just described. Um, and the eastern portion of that territory is now basically under Turkish control, together with um, some Turkish-aligned rebels, but largely Turkey. And that's part of a bid to deny um, the Kurdish community in Syria control over a continuous, contiguous excuse me, area at the Turkish border in northern Syria. So bottom line, Assad has regained control over the vast majority of the country. And obviously he has done this with decisive military contributions from Russian air assets and Iranian forces on the ground. I think it's also worth saying, just as we try to lay the groundwork of what's happened in Syria over seven years of war, that we've seen at least six million people who have been displaced outside of Syria, fled Syria to Lebanon, Turkey, and Jordan with over 3 million in Turkey alone, and another nearly 7 million internally displaced people within Syria. And then depending on um, what source you look at, the death toll from the war stands anywhere between 500 to 700,000 people, of which most would agree, regardless of which end of that particular um, spectrum of numbers you might be at, that at least two-thirds are civilians. And indeed, the fact that it's hard to account for precisely the numbers itself is telling about just the nature of the carnage. Hundreds of thousands of more people, of course, are profoundly injured. Tens of thousands of people have been disappeared into detention, torture, and may well have died under horrific conditions. And the principal party responsible for all of this is the Assad regime itself, which opted to militarize and sectarianize a conflict that began as a nonviolent uprising against repressive authoritarian rule of a peace with the sort of Arab uprisings that were present in the rest of the region in 2011. Now that you've laid out that basic capsule history and, and state of affairs as a sort of horrific backdrop for everything else we're going to discuss in our interview, I want to I want to pivot to U.S. policy, which is the focus of the piece that you and Aziz wrote. To start that out, what what was Obama's policy towards Syria and how has Trump's differed? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Obama's policy, I think very broadly towards Syria, was of a piece with the policy towards the Arab uprisings, which was that they were seen as an opportunity to bolster allies and flip adversaries. So as an example, just immediately before the Syrian uprising began in Libya, the United States was willing to engage in a direct military intervention uh, in order to basically flip, if not an adversary, then certainly a regime that was not allied directly with the United States. Um, and mm -hmm. that was because Libya was a kind of low-hanging fruit. It had been previously disarmed. Um, it did not have significant allies, uh, certainly amongst major geopolitical players. It had a small population. It was assessed as a low-cost intervention uh, that would potentially advance the idea of having more pro-American regimes or pro-Western regimes in the region. Syria was the exact opposite of this. It had known air defenses. It had some a small number of quite important geostrategic allies, a relatively large population. It was in a relatively dangerous geostrategic location from the perspective of U.S. interest with borders on Israel, Iraq, Jordan, Turkey. And so the foreseeable spillover effects of engaging through direct military intervention were much greater. So instead, the Obama administration opted for a series of half measures. It took the position that Assad must go, that the dictator in Syria uh, must be dispatched. But this was based on a false expectation that the momentum on the ground, together with a regional proxy war driven by American allies in the Gulf, would see the sort of opposition side prevail through applications of indirect minimum amounts of force, even without the United States getting more directly involved. 
The Obama administration also initially took the position that Iran could not be included in negotiations for a political settlement in Syria, um, which led to a basic failure of the initial diplomatic track that had been undertaken in Geneva under United Nations auspices and resulted in the resignations of the first two UN envoys to that process, Kofi Annan and later Lakhdar Brahimi, both of them seasoned, very well-regarded international diplomats, both of whom resigned from those positions for lack of support internationally for inclusive talks. That's what they both went on record saying, which was, I think, a direct uh, reference to the U.S. refusal to allow one of the major parties in the conflict to participate in the negotiations for its end. The United States also recognized a, a set of opposition actors as legitimate representatives of Syria early on, which was a critical signal to the opposition that the international context was not going to allow the Assad regime to remain in office, creating an implicit expectation that if and when it became necessary, intervention would be scaled up in order to enable the goal that Assad must go to be accomplished. This also created the political context for diplomatic cover that enabled Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Qatar, Turkey, others to fund and arm the opposition um, with almost no uh, regulation or monitoring of who those weapons and funds were going to. How is it that Obama apparently saw the lack of effectiveness and dangers associated with a direct U.S. intervention, given that the invasion of Iraq had played such a role in laying the the groundwork for the Syrian conflict in the first place, but but didn't see a more indirect, unconventional U.S. intervention wouldn't pose similar dangers and be similarly ineffective when it came to achieving the stated objective. I mean, I think there was a fundamental misreading of the context to begin with. It again, in the immediate aftermath of the fall of the Ben Ali and Mubarak regimes in Tunisia and Egypt, respectively, and then the action in Libya, I think there was an assessment that the Assad regime would fall relatively quickly either way, that in other words, this opposition would succeed, particularly because of um, a regional alignment against Assad, the Arab League, led by Saudi Arabia, um, seeking to isolate the Assad regime. And as a consequence, that this commitment of support to regional allies is going to help ensure that the United States had a stake in shaping a future Syrian regime, probably under Sunni leadership, that would be uh, part of a pro-American um, alliance rather than an anti-American axis, as the Assad regime was viewed. So it was a fundamental um, you know, misreading of the context in Syria at the outset, and then a series, as I say, of half measures. So continuing to um, attempt to shape outcomes without committing significant resources or, for that matter, political will. A great example of this is the chemical weapons negotiations, where the Obama administration, on the one hand, announces a red line over chemical weapons use, but then, on the other hand, is neither able to muster domestic political will or an international coalition around that red line. And so only under those circumstances is willing to go to political negotiation in order to get a commitment with Russian backing that the Assad regime would not use chemical weapons. Um, that's an example of undertaking an initiative and then sort of uh, doubling back once it became clear that it was going to require some real resources to be committed, something the Obama administration was not prepared to do. They were willing to do things like a covert arm and train program, and that was something that the CIA ran in Syria, eventually offering direct assistance and training to a set of rebels 
largely in the anti-Islamic state context. Once the Islamic State emerges, the United States also is willing to engage in a direct aerial campaign and offer more direct support to Kurdish YPG forces on the ground. But the bottom line was that there was an assessment at the outset that a minimal amount of regional support to internal opposition actors would be sufficient to topple the Assad regime and then a failure to course correct along the way. The differences with the Trump administration is that uh, the Trump administration for the moment has dropped the Assad must go condition. Uh, did execute strikes against chemical weapons installations, ended the CIA covert assistance program. The uh, President Trump has periodically suggested that he actually wants to withdraw remaining U.S. troops on the ground that were there in connection to the anti-Islamic state project um, from Syria. It's not clear if that's going to happen. The Trump administration's also sent mixed messages about their willingness to continue support for Kurdish forces. But what they haven't done, what is completely missing, and the thing that provoked Aziz and Idis to write is the Trump administration, um, continuous with the Obama administration, has basically failed to engage in any kind of meaningful um, negotiating track commitment toward the political settlement. And of course, even more than the Obama administration, the Trump administration has evinced a hostility to Iran that has turned Syria really, from the Trump administration perspective, into a proxy for pursuing a, con a containment strategy for Iran. On that point, you, you mentioned a few minutes ago that the Obama administration set conditions for talks that essentially made substantive talks a priori impossible. One was that Assad leave power as a condition, another that Iran be be excluded from the talks. What motivated setting conditions on negotiations to end an armed conflict that excluded major actors in that very conflict? Was that, like you mentioned earlier, a poor reading of the situation in Syria, or was it a fundamental lack of interest in negotiations that would actually end the conflict? Yeah, I think under the Obama administration, it was an assessment that real negotiations would only occur meaningfully once the regime was had fallen. So it was still built on at the beginning, so from 2012 to, say, 2014-15, on the view that, um, the, that Assad would be ousted one way or another. And the point of creating a kind of track for negotiations was deciding who would get included at the table once the regime fell in coming up with a negotiated settlement for the post-Assad future of Syria. Of course, things didn't go that way. And towards the end of the Obama administration, uh, there was a willingness to engage in some negotiations that included Iran. Um, so, you know, there was a reversal, of course. But the ironic, of course, um, result of the long-standing position under the Obama administration was that the parties that ultimately were committed to putting resources into the conflict and eventually shifting the sort of dynamic on the ground, Russia and Iran, uh, were able to create a completely different set of talks that excluded the United States. So in other words, to adopt a parallel position as the one that the United States had taken, this time um, setting a table for negotiations that did not include uh, significant representation of opposition groups or their backers. Uh, I.e. the United States and the... And uh, the Gulf states. The Gulf states. It's also worth noting that the Trump administration's approach to would-be negotiations with Iran is very similar. So that is listing a set of conditions that almost everybody, the moment that the conditions are stated, understands to be designed actually to preclude talks. So when uh, Secretary of State Pompeo says 
that we're only willing to talk with Iran if it meets preconditions, including the ending of its ballistic missile program, much broader access to the International Atomic Energy Agency, and for support for all of its regional um, proxies, Hezbollah, Hamas, and others, disarming Shia militias in Iraq, ending support for the Houthis, withdrawing all forces from Syria, changing its basic regional foreign policy. These are not conditions um, that can possibly be met as a prior condition for talks. It's it's the very thing that the negotiations would presumably be about between the United States and Iran. So it's a kind of similar idea that is to lay out conditions for talks that themselves may basically preclude talks. One key thing that both the Obama administration and more hawkish and its more hawkish critics seem to fail to understand early in the conflict was how much easier it would be for Iranian and Russian forces to intervene to protect an embattled regime than it would be for the U.S. and its allies to overthrow that regime. It seems as though U.S. policy at that moment was, I don't know, was it premised on ignorance of the larger geopolitical context? Did the U.S. not understand that for for Russia and Iran, the Assad regime was a, a critical ally to keep in place? It's an interesting question. It does seem um, very strange to have ignored the larger geopolitical context to the extent that they appeared to do, and also to mistake the challenge of propping up an ally um, as opposed to overthrowing an adversary and then creating a political context that remains favorable geostrategically. So uh, it is... it is hard to explain. I mean, it could be that uh, for some reason they underestimated the significance of Assad or the willingness of Russia to commit real resources um, in order to maintain its, for example, naval position in Syria. Uh, and it could have believed, it's possible that they believed that either Iran was overstretched or that, um, that uh, you know, a different track with respect to Iran, which at the time that the Syrian um, conflict began, the Obama administration was dramatically tightening sanctions on Iran and pursuing a very uh, aggressive strategy to try to force Iran to the table on the nuclear issue, um, that that strategy was going to be sufficient to contain Iranian ambitions in Syria. But whatever the logic was, uh, what was apparent is that both, on the one hand, the Russian and Iranian commitment to Syria must have been underestimated in the sort of Assad will go relatively easily with a level of indirect force applied through regional allies. And also there may have been an overassessment of what the regional allies themselves could deliver. One of the the ironies here is that whatever the the reason that the U.S. misjudged the the nature of the the geopolitical context, it is now, you and Aziz argue, very much subjecting the fate of the Syrian people to the U.S.'s broader geopolitical goals. Tell me a little bit about currently what the U.S. is prioritizing achieving in the Syrian conflict, because it's not it's not peace or security for Syrian people. You know, I mean, the it's hard to say. One of the reasons that we offered the article is because there was a clear indication um, going into the Helsinki summit that there was going to be some attempt at a deal concerning Syria with Putin. And some of the speculation before the summit took place was that this was going to be a trading of Syria for objectives um, in Ukraine. 
but that primarily the goal in Syria itself is actually about um, U.S. priorities with respect to Iran. So, for example, National Security Advisor John Bolton explicitly characterized Syria as a sideshow and said that the real American concern in Syria is Iran. And so the goal would be to um, get the Russian government to agree to objectives that the United States is pursuing with respect to the containment of Iran by coming to some kind of an agreement that would presumably substantially reduce the Iranian position in Syria. Uh, of course, coming out of the Helsinki summit, um, Syria was hardly even on the agenda of the press conference. There was very little said. We reference it a bit in the article, uh, you know, statement here about concern uh, about Iranian presence with respect to Israeli security, a sort of offhand remark about humanitarian assistance, but very, very little. So we don't actually know concretely what was act what what was discussed or agreed, if anything. So we can only surmise um, that that summit, like so many other opportunities to actually try to pursue a form of settlement that might include the objectives of the local actors that we claim to have been intervening on behalf of over the course of um, the last seven years, that 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 set of objectives were not engaged. And rather, um, what John Bolton suggested going into the summit was basically the only sense in which Syria was discussed by the parties, which is in this kind of broader geostrategic uh, framing around Iran. On that note, I want to quote from the article. You write that the Trump-Putin summit makes clear once more for the central external actors, Syria's fate has never been about what would actually aid the people on the ground, but rather which larger alliances should dominate the region. And quote, just as the alleged non-intervention of the United States in the Syrian conflict provided cover for continuous intervention, diplomacy over Syria is little more than a pretext for the pursuit of a new military grand strategy. What would a constructive settlement in the region involving the U.S. and the rest of the major powers involved there, what would that look like by contrast to the utterly inhuman status quo that we've been in for for years. So let me just start with what would a political settlement look settlement look like for Syria, and then maybe we can um, broaden the lens a little bit to talk about what would a reorientation, a fundamental rethink of the U.S. approach to the Middle East look like. With respect to Syria, I think the principal goal has to be ending the violence and ratcheting down the sectarianization. So reversing the two main trends that have been enhanced by the American position, militarization and sectarianization. Now, I want to just say what I did at the outset already, which is that this strategy, militarization and sectarianization, was a strategy that was deployed by the Assad regime. Uh, it's that what we're concerned with is the degree to which the U.S. various forms of indirect and more direct intervention in the conflict have exacerbated that phenomenon and actually played into that strategy. So from our perspective, the goal, the immediate goal has to be um, both ending that militarization and ratcheting down the sectarianization of the conflict. Now, how does the United States control this if the Assad regime has been a major driver? First of all, um, the, on the 
side of U.S. regional allies, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, have played a dramatic role also in offering their backing for a sectarian vision of the future of Syria and um, backing particular actors on the ground also on a fundamentally sectarian basis. So the goal of ratcheting down sectarianization would have to see a reduction in the um, role and influence for these Gulf actors in shaping that particular narrative in Syria. And concomitantly, it would be would have to be part of a negotiation to try to induce both the Syrian regime and its backers, notably Iran, to do the same. And in the Iranian case, this might mean actually reducing some of its own personnel on the ground in Syria, which are contributing to that challenge. Then also Idlib, as I've already mentioned, um, is a place where there is a very predictable humanitarian catastrophe on the horizon. And it's a place where the sectarian logic is really at its apogee, potentially at least. So there would need to be some clear guarantees uh, in place about ratcheting down violence as opposed to up there. And here Turkey would need to play a role. Uh, Turkey would like to see guarantees concerning Syrian Kurdistan, namely that it won't become a base for PKK operations uh, and that there will be territorial integrity of Syria rather than an autonomous new Kurdish state forming. Uh, I think the goal of having Turkish forces withdraw from the north of Syria and desist from controlling territory and also having Turkey back a, a meaningful sort of strategy for Idlib are important goals that would need to be um, pursued while simultaneously addressing those specific concerns of Turkey. Now, why would the United States be able to have some influence here? Um, it's true that Russia and Iran at this point basically determine in terms of external actors uh, the terms or framework for any particular settlement because they've altered the facts on the ground dramatically through their own military engagement. Ironically, very much because of the fact that the U.S. set conditions for talks in such a way that ultimately ceded the ceded power to, to their adversaries in Iran and Russia. Right. The failure at a time when there was much greater leverage to deploy that for a political settlement in the first years of the conflict uh, through the Geneva process or through, uh, you know, clearly UN-backed process has meant that the diplomatic initiative is now in Russia's favor um, and is largely defined by a set of talks that have been Russian-sponsored in Kazakhstan um, and in Russia itself, Astana and Sochi. And uh, in any case, so it's definitely true that the Russians and the Iranians have tremendous um, leverage now in what a political settlement might look like. But that doesn't mean that the United States has none. The Saudi Arabia, Saudi, the Saudis and the United Arab Emirates um, are very much within a kind of uh, American-defined alliance scheme that currently is emerging in the region. And if the United States elected to use its political capital to impose some terms, it's difficult to see how either of those parties would be able to resist um, the the set of American preferences. They have an enormous number of commitments now in the region that depend on American support, not least uh, in their other military excursion in Yemen. And they also are very keen to uh, see a kind of reframing of the region hand in hand with the United States, which gives the United States leverage over those Gulf actors who have played a very significant role. The United States also has an important bilateral relationship with Turkey, which is currently under strain, but uh, being able to join forces to address some Turkish um, concerns while at the same time 
putting pressure on Turkey to pull out its military forces from northern Syria and pursue and assist with a solution for Idlib is something that would actually likely um, strengthen that relationship between the United States and Turkey and again have a constructive effect in Syria. But the number one form of U.S. leverage or support that could be um, deployed in Syria is the ability of the United States to provide financing for the reconstruction of the country, for addressing the needs of internally displaced people, for resettlement of refugee populations in the surrounding area. Uh, so committing to significantly shoulder the financial burden for addressing what's happened in Syria is another element that the United States could bring to bear on um, giving itself some capacity to have uh, an ameliorative effect on a political settlement in Syria. A question about two other countries. Um, one is Erdogan influenceable by, by any power right now? And two, what about Israel? Just returning to how the conflict in Syria is actually being framed as opposed to what, you know, what ideally ought to be the case. The reason for um, the sort of incredible focus on Iran has, of course, to do with the U.S. relationship with Israel, in addition to its relationship with Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. Uh, and it is important to understand Syria, therefore, in that broader context of those particular relationships. Uh, so let's just step back for a moment and talk about Iran, and then I'll return to Erdogan um, and Israel. But the Trump administration has, of course, marked its distinction from the Obama administration, most notably in the foreign policy realm, by withdrawing from the Iranian nuclear deal, which was partly about just opposing any foreign policy um, initiative that was that was basically identified with the Obama administration. But it was also because that deal was understood in the region as a step in the direction of the normalization of Iran. The U.S. has suspended relations with Iran, of course, since the hostage crisis. Uh, and that is a, the fact that the United States doesn't recognize Iran, does not engage bilaterally and directly with Iran, is something that was extremely important to core American allies in the region, namely Israel, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates. Those countries fear not so much a nuclear Iran, but any shift in the regional balance of power that favors Iran. And because the Iraq war um, by the United States in 2003 inadvertently expanded Iran's sphere of influence, those countries have been more alarmed about um, potential Iranian role in the region and have been much more aligned um, themselves, amongst themselves, Israel, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates, in their shared strategy of containing Iran. And Syria's border with Israel makes this even more urgent from the Israeli perspective because the concern that an Iranian presence in Syria might enhance uh, Iran's ability to threaten Israeli interests is something that um, has been a longstanding concern of Israel. So Israel And Israel just recently uh, is reported to have assassinated a top weapons engineer of some sort in Syria. Exactly. Um, and it has escalated its own presence in the Syrian campaign. And as I already mentioned, they took credit together with Jordanians for the killing of some Islamic State forces at the border. Um, they're very concerned about stabilizing the Golan and ensuring that there is no Iranian presence in the south of Syria, where um, the border with Israel. So that is, Israel has really placed uh, its strategic eggs in a basket of containing Iran and thereby sort of tacitly aligning itself with Sunni actors in the region. As a result, it's actually um, itself 
led to the policies that is adopted mirror and echo the sectarianization I was speaking to earlier, the, the Israeli alignment with core Sunni actors. Uh, in the meantime, that Israeli position with respect to Iran has also had domestic reverberations here in the United States. Politically engaged evangelical Christians that are an important part of the electoral coalition of the right in the United States view the Middle East through the prism of Israel. And that has meant that Iran is in some respects also, Iran policy is also a captive of domestic politics in the United States. And this is seen in, for example, the fact that key administration figures uh, in the Trump administration, like John Bolton, like Mike Pompeo, like Rudy Giuliani, who's not an administration actor, but is nonetheless um, a sort of surrogate of the president, have not only adopted an extremely hawkish anti-Iran position, but have also themselves ties to opposition groups within Iran, regime opponents like the Mujahideen al-Khalq organization, which has been had been viewed until uh, 2012 as a terrorist organization. It's one of the very few, if not only, terrorist organizations to ever be, ever be de-designated by the United States, uh, which happened as a consequence of intense lobbying precisely by these um, Iran hawks that have aligned themselves with whatever opposition figures um, might threaten the Iranian regime internally. By the way, it's worth noting that that group, the Mujahideen Khalq, is actually widely despised in Iran and is extremely unlikely to be an effective partner for internal regime change well, they, or whatever. They fought alongside Saddam Hussein's forces in the Iran-Iraq war. Right. It's not and they exactly were also, a great way to endear yourself to your countrymen. And I mean, they had they had an assassination campaign um, within the country that also targeted civil servants and Left, led to the deaths of ordinary citizens there. Yeah, I mean, that's what led to its terrorist designation in the first place, in any case. So Iran has really become, in some respects, the premier adversary um, for the United States, through which certainly Middle East policy um, is understood, and even broader policies. Uh, and this, of, this, therefore, of course, connects to both how the United States and Israel are framing Syria strategy, um, what the role has been of the Gulf and so on. So Syria is a piece of that broader story and the fact that it's tied also to a kind of domestic politics on the right in the United States is significant. So that for the Israel piece. Um, on Just a really quick thing to, to highlight there that, uh, you, that you touched on briefly is that I've seen a lot of uh, analyses suggesting that if not already, then very soon in the future, the the Christian Zionist right is going to be a much more important domestic constituency in terms of the pro-Israel and anti-Iran lobby in the U.S. than Jewish American organizations as younger Jewish people move to the left and as Israel moves just brazenly to the to the to the far right under Netanyahu, that the political underpinnings in the U.S. of the alliance are are shifting. I think that's exactly right. And in in this context, it's also interesting to think about um, American policy towards Russia and towards Putin, because um, it's a little confusing sometimes when uh, it appears that, you know, there's a rapprochement of some kind, for example, between Trump and Putin in Helsinki, but yet Russia is allied with Iran. How does this policy make sense as a sort of broader uh configuration of American strategy in the region. And I think here again, Israel is an incredibly important piece of the equation. Uh, the Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu, you just mentioned, has repeatedly met with President Putin of Russia and has treated Russia as an actor that Israel can do business with. Um, this has also been a strategy that's been pursued by the Saudis and the Emiratis, who have also been trying to sort of um, woo Russia and suggest that there may be um, 
you know, possible overtures for a different Middle East alignment together in partnership with Russia if Russia were willing to sever ties with Iran. So the Iran containment story sort of makes sense of how to best understand a rapprochement effort with Russia if one, in fact, is underway while simultaneously seeking to, to engage in an aggressive containment strategy towards Iran. They're sort of connected because the idea of sort of pulling Russia away from Iran is part of a broader goal of containment for actors in the region itself, the Israelis, the Saudis, and the Emiratis. And so that sort of makes sense of the picture that we saw in Helsinki in a way that I think is harder to do if you're not, if you don't understand where the Israeli and the Gulf um, positions match up to or connect to a willingness to talk about Syria specifically with Russia. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Prisoners of the American Dream, Politics and Economy in the History of the U.S. Working Class by Mike Davis. Out now in a new edition. Prisoners of the American Dream is Mike Davis's brilliant exegesis of a persistent and major analytical problem for Marxist historians and political economists. Why has the world's most industrially advanced nation never spawned a mass party of the working class? This series of essays surveys the history of the American bourgeois democratic revolution, from its Jacksonian beginnings to the rise of the new right and the re-election of Ronald Reagan, concluding with some bracing thoughts on the prospects for progressive politics in the United States. Prisoners of the American Dream, Politics and Economy in the History of the U.S. Working Class, by Mike Davis, out now in a new edition from Verso Books. Do you know if the Iranian political and national security state establishment see a Russian break with them and realignment against them as a possible outcome of the current set of conflicts? I couldn't answer that question through direct knowledge, of course, of what's being uh, debated in the establishment amongst national security elites in Iran. But certainly there are just um, plenty of indications that there must be concern along those lines for any analyst that's looking at this carefully on the Iranian side. Um, because, for example, there is reason to believe that those meetings between Netanyahu and Putin uh, were the precursor to enable the Israelis to strike at various Iranian um, positions in Syria over the course of last year. And so uh, enabling that, I mean, it may very well be that the Russians have also given the Iranians some notice. But in any case, the willingness of the um, Putin government to engage in those direct negotiations with Israel and to allow a certain margin of maneuver must be interpreted as, um, you know, not ideal from the Iranian perspective. And as we now start moving in the direction of a military resolution potentially to the core conflict in Syria, um, then once there is some stability in the Assad regime, it's very possible that Russian and Iranian interests could diverge. It's not necessarily the case, and it's very unclear uh, what direction U.S.-Russia relations are taking, and Putin is certainly a pragmatic actor uh, and will 
you know, continually make a contextual assessment of what is in his own best interests in terms of expanding the geostrategic influence of Russia. So none of these are principled partnerships. All of them are dependent on interests. And it's really a question of what will interest dictate as the most unpredictable actor in the whole equation, the United States, uh, sort of sets a clear course either in its relationship with Russia um, or in its uh, strategy towards Turkey or... Um, you know, in, more generally, we can certainly see that the Trump administration has committed itself to a strong um, reaffirmation of the alliance with Israel and with the Saudis and the Emiratis. But beyond that, there's quite a bit that's still quite fluid about what it is that the Trump administration is planning to do. And I'm sure that Putin and, for that matter, the Iranians are assessing their options accordingly. Where does Turkey see itself in terms of the larger geopolitical alliances. There's been, uh, Turkey was initially shifted very hard against Assad, and that was one of its main priorities. And then it shifted its emphasis to fighting fighting the Kurds. Uh, with Israel, there's been uh, a lot of up and down from the, the moment that uh, a number of Turkish activists were killed a few years ago attempting to break the Gaza blockade to uh, more of a rapprochement in recent years. Uh, and then there's been renewed tensions between Turkey and the U.S. all, you know, uh, at the same time as there's an incredible amount of political crisis and conflict within Turkey itself. Turkey's objectives in Syria uh, have shifted dramatically, as you pointed out. So at the outset, it was really seen as part of the Arab uprisings uh, in which the Turks, uh, the Turkish leadership, specifically the current president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who then was prime minister, aligned himself very powerfully with the Muslim Brotherhood across the region and, as a, and expected to see... Um, similar outcome in Syria as it had in Tunisia and Egypt of um, Muslim Brotherhood opposition figures benefiting from the ouster of a long-standing authoritarian regime and therefore committed itself to um, the dispatch of Assad. And for the same reasons that that proved to be a mistaken strategy on the part of the United States, it also um, did not work out well from the Turkish position. And as Turkey allowed itself to become a conduit for arms and finance uh, to Syria, there was you know tremendous fluidity and porousness of the border between Turkey and Syria with um, opposition groups and fighters crossing the border back and forth, meeting with, you know, financiers in uh, southeastern Turkey that were coming from the Gulf and getting direct support also from Turkey, um, financing from the government uh, and so forth. Uh, Turkey itself became um, a place that experienced tremendous spillover from the Syria conflict and so, to the point that it was, uh, in certain areas at least, somewhat destabilizing the number of um, Syrian refugees is quite large, although Turkey is a large country with a large population that can certainly absorb three and a half million Syrians more easily than, for example, a small country like Lebanon or Jordan can absorb a million, which each of them may well be housing at the moment. Uh, but still, but then uh, Turkey is also a transit country for refugees heading to Europe, which then becomes a core facet of Turkey EU negotiations. This is just like one one of many examples of where the conflict continues to reverberate on so many different levels through so many 
different countries all the way all the way here. <laughs> Absolutely. But over time, as you also pointed out, the Turkish position then shifted to basically uh, what is a very classic foreign policy posture for the Turkish state. So what Erdogan was doing initially, intervening in the internal affairs of other countries, trying to back opposition groups, taking a clear Muslim Brotherhood line, all of those things were very uh, discontinuous with traditional Turkish policy towards the Middle East and were very much branded AKP, the party that Erdogan belongs to um, in, in Turkey. What he has since done is just revert to form, which is basically take an anti-Kurdish line, a deeply ethno-nationalist line on Turkish politics and um, move to stabilize the border and to prevent the emergence of an autonomous Kurdish um, political unit on Turkey's border. And so that really has been the priority in the um, Turkish policy towards Syria. That shift began in at as early as 2014, maybe even a little bit earlier, but has become very pronounced since 2015 when, as a consequence of the anti-Islamic state uh, campaign and the United States and other actors partnering with Kurdish forces on the ground, arms and funds, and more critically from the perspective of the Turkish government, legitimacy being attached to YPG forces, which the Turkish government view as an extension of the PKK, uh, the Turkish government shifted entirely. Again, here, the United States enabled that Turkish policy, allowed the Turks to present what amounts to a military offensive against Kurdish actors on the ground as part of a broader Islamic State campaign. So the Turkish military was allowed to join the, um, or, or purported to join the anti-Islamic State coalition and gave the Americans the right to use air bases in Turkey in order to mount missions in Syria in connection to, and in Iraq in connection to the anti-Islamic State operations in exchange for joining the coalition uh, and then the Turkish activities in the coalition were almost entirely directed at Kurdish forces. And Turkey framed its position as a kind of counterterrorism position where Islamic State actors and YPG actors were treated as if they were um, both part of a broader terrorist problem. Uh, so under... And I presume this also served the domestic political interests of the AKP's alliance with, I don't recall the name of it, but a major nationalist political party. Yes, the MHP, the uh, National Action Party. That's right. So around the same time, the AKP also had a dramatic shift in its domestic strategy uh, towards allying itself directly with a hard-right nationalist party and basically courting the nationalist vote in the country, be it so expanding its range beyond its own underlying constituency base to incorporate um, these sort of ultra-nationalist groups. And so both within Turkey and in an enormous military offensive against Kurdish actors within Turkey, in Turkey's Kurdish provinces, and outside of Turkey uh, in military operations against Kurdish actors in Iraq and Syria, the Turkish government pivoted hard in an anti-Kurdish direction um, and, you know, but also had still relations with the rebel groups, opposition groups that it had supported in Syria. So Turkey has two now um, sort of different postures in Syria in the north, one in Idlib, where it's one of the guarantors or sponsors of the so-called de-escalation zone around Idlib province, which is one of the four de-escalation zones that had been created as part of the Russian-directed Astana peace process um, with respect to Syria. This is the only one really left standing, as I already mentioned. There's a small, still rebel-held 
corner pocket of territory in the southwest, but primarily the main remaining de-escalation zone is around Idlib with a very large population. And Turkey is very committed to ensuring that that does not um, come under attack because it would produce, again, a massive refugee flow in the direction of Turkey. Uh, but it would also mean the destruction of the remaining um, outpost of opposition actors that it and others have backed in the Syrian conflict. So on the one hand, it has its goals in Idlib, and on the other hand, it has its goals in um, preventing a Kurdish, autonomous Kurdish entity from emerging out of Syria and Rojava and maintaining control of the parts of um, Kurdish Syria that it has already um, established around Afrin in particular. So in light of this... Um, is Erdogan someone you can negotiate with? Is the question you'd asked. Um, these, you know, Erdogan has taken very positions for clear reasons. There's a strategic logic to the positions that Turkey has taken, and if the United States decides that it's a important goal to facilitate a political settlement and one that de-escalates violence and so on, it's possible to connect those two positions, the one in Idlib and the one in Rojava, to induce the Turks to behave far better with respect to Syria and Kurdistan in exchange for helping them attain some goals of protection, um, which is an important humanitarian consideration uh, in Idlib. So it may be possible. I mean, Erdogan has shown himself to be a remarkably pragmatic actor when it comes to being able to meet his own interests, even though in his speeches and political actions domestically, he comes across as a, a very ideological actor. In fact, his record is one of opportunism and pragmatism for the most part. It may be possible and it may not be, in part because, uh, you know, the ability of the United States to articulate a position that would actually be aligned with the interests of other actors in Syria is limited by the fact that it understands Syria entirely at the moment through the prism of Iran from what we can gather from the Trump administration. Two other facets of any regional settlement that we haven't discussed yet that I want to briefly touch on, uh, and they're at different ends of the region, are Iraq and Yemen. First, uh, Iraq, which obviously is one of Syria's neighbors and the invasion of which played such a key role in the rise of ISIS and is currently beset by not only reconstruction after the uh, war against ISIS in, in, in Mosul and other parts of Iraq, but but serious sectarian differences that that remain within the country. So first that, and then I'd like to, to address Yemen. In the case of Iraq, uh, you know, obviously it is the f most clear example of why U.S. intervention, uh, particularly intervention that's um, designed to topple a regime, is something to be wary of. Because however unsavory and terrible the Saddam Hussein regime was, the aftermath of the collapse of that regime has produced not only a period of tremendous violence and um you know, sort of catastrophic humanitarian outcomes on the ground for most Iraqis. Again, here I think Kurdistan is um, different and therefore the fate of Mosul is something to be discussed in the context of the anti-Islamic state campaign and what it has wrought. Um, but for most Iraqis, it's the original 2003 invasion that produced the sort of incredible violence that they still continue to be subject to and the destabilization uh, and the failure to establish institutions that are... And sectarianization... Of course, and sectarianization of the country. So, um, you know, what can be done to begin to address that? I think a lot of what is required that is um, 
for starters, obviously, local actors on the ground are going to have to dictate the terms of the ultimate political orders that will emerge from this period across the region. Uh, and it's not going to be the case that the United States can impose or necessarily even um, constructively influence those outcomes. But in places where the United States has a direct responsibility for destruction and for having produced tremendous humanitarian suffering, it has an obligation to commit monies to reconstruction at a minimum and to be able to begin to address the actual crisis that its violence has inflicted. So that is a de minimis um, you know, objective that the United States needs to pursue. Beyond that, I think uh, reduction... In, uh, Just to make it clear, nothing close to reparations have been paid to Iraq. And this is not even something no. that's in mainstream American political debate. No, far from it. I mean, I think actually another thing to understand about Iraq and why it's so representative of um, the, the challenge that is produced by American violence in the region is that not only do we not talk in any sense about reparations in Iraq, but to the contrary, we speak often in, at least, and when I say we here, I mean, I mean the American political discourse uh, presents Iraqis as failing to be grateful. They're inadequately, uh, they show inadequate gratitude for having been liberated by America and the United States is presented as having expended tremendous um, you know, cost, material, personnel, et cetera, in Iraq, and that now Iraq is seen as this kind of pathological uh, country that has failed to appreciate the largesse shown by the United States and therefore should be left to its own devices because ultimately it's the fault and responsibility of Iraqis that they were unable to translate this gift into a stable, coherent political system. That way of understanding the use of American force as benign, well-intentioned, liberationist, and then um, if it fails to actually produce those ends on the ground, uh, turning the framing around to attribute responsibility for the feckless and incompetent population that we came in to save, that is exactly why we continue believing that intervention can serve positive ends, because we continually frame our interventions ultimately as designed um, both for humanitarian and liberationist, emancipationist ends and uh, presented through benign intentions. And then the failure of those interventions to produce the hoped for outcome on the ground is pathologized and attributed to other actors. America the Innocent. I think that's a, an extremely critical point uh, that's not made often enough, which really draws a line from Bush's neoconservatism to Trump's quasi-isolationism. Right. Absolutely. Um, I think that's a continuous through line of, um, yeah, the America as a force for good, seeking uh, to engage in ways that are necessarily going to be emancipatory, and any failure for that uh, to materialize being something that is further evidence of the pathology of the region itself, as opposed to anything connected to American action. So piercing through that narrative, and I mean, you know, there are variants of it. So not everybody, and of course, not the entire American political spectrum present um, Iraqis as ungrateful um, and America as necessarily benign in Iraq, but there is a consistent theme throughout that there that Iraqis are at fault. Iraqis are at fault for the collapse, for the violence, for sectarianization, etc., without in any way appreciating the 
causal relationships between choices made by the United States in its deployment of violence and outcomes that occurred on the ground that shaped the incentives of local actors in in pursuit of, you know, stability for their own communities, in pursuit of support. I mean, the support was provided on sectarian grounds. The politics of the country were interpreted through a sectarian lens by external actors, by the United States. And of course, uh, there was also an, a pre-existing balance that was utterly upended. And there was a major neighbor, Iran, um, that was in a position to also channel assistance and aid in Iraq. Uh, and that, again, like the presence of uh, Russia and Iran in Syria, should have been entirely foreseeable. But for, you know, again, reasons that it's difficult to reconstruct why the Bush administration might not have foreseen that, why the Obama administration might not have foreseen the role that Russia and Iran would likely play in if they were to be confronted with a situation in which the Assad regime appeared to be on the brink of being toppled by uh, regional actors, because these were unanticipated, then the United States presents itself as innocent of those consequences, notwithstanding the fact that what triggered these responses is the presence of, and, and this is especially true in Iraq, of direct American action that then created the cascade effect that introduced uh, all of the incentives for the remaining actors in the region. Um, so on Iraq, of course, we have tremendous obligations and there are ongoing obligations. Uh, and it's important to understand how both Iraq and Yemen fit into a broader American strategy with respect to the region. So I just want to say something about what that's looked like. That, again, as you say, is a through line from Bush to Trump. And then think about what it would mean to reorient. My, my last question on Iraq before you draw that broader picture, which I would like to hear you draw. Are you optimistic that this latest iteration of, of Muqtada al-Sadr in alliance with the Iraqi Communist Party might successfully make progress in desectarianizing a conflict that the U.S. invasion did so much to brutally sectarianize? You know, look, again, as I said, uh, the bottom line is um, it's going to be actors on the ground that ultimately craft whatever proves to be a stable governing arrangement. Uh, whatever that's going to look like. And it may end up looking um, like something uh, either not normatively preferable to what preceded the American invasion or uh, perhaps an improvement. It's hard to you know, predict that. But certainly the, the idea of having a coalition along those lines emerge in Iraq on its face looks like an improvement over what we've seen in terms of the deep sectarianization of par political party life and political... Um, sort of electoral framings in Iraq until now. So the idea that you can emerge on a, with a coalition that is looking at bread and butter issues and that distances itself from a sectarian framing and that actively embraces a, a sort of coalition politics that is intended to uh, appeal to a, an array of constituencies aligning their interests around specifically um, you know, bread and butter issues, as I say again, like reconstruction, uh, economic development, addressing corruption, that is on its face very positive, but it's very difficult. Um, and this is another reason, by the way, why these interventions are so deeply problematic. Even after 15 years of continuous American engagement in Iraq, there just isn't a deep enough relationship between um, the United States and Iraq to properly assess what the competing goals of actors on the ground may be. I mean, their interests, what what their alignments are, who is influential, how constituencies are being drawn, how 
persuasive or, or unpersuasive that particular framing might be ultimately, predicting that is very difficult from here because ultimately we are not Iraqis. We are, you know, living in the United States and um, have a shallow and limited understanding of what Iraqis may may actually have in terms of goals and what kinds of political constellations they produce. So, I mean, to my own mind, that uh, idea of presenting a coalition that was that was presented in any case as um, crossing many of the sort of sectarian lines is uh, is very appealing, but whether or not ultimately it ends up having gaining a foothold that's stable, whether it collapses back into a different discourse, I, I think it's impossible from sitting here in Los Angeles to predict any of those things. Now, returning to that 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 big picture through line that you were about to draw before I dragged you into Iraq's new um, government. Yeah. So what has the U.S. grand strategy for the Middle East been? From the Cold War forward, it has been to maintain access to the region's oil and waters ways. So the geostrategic location resources of the region have been critical to any understanding of it. And this led to strategic partnerships with Iran, Saudi Arabia, and Egypt in the Cold War. And then, of course, Iran's strategy gave way 40 years ago. Uh, with the Iranian revolution to antagonism and low-intensity conflict with Iran. But that basic idea of the centrality of the region's oil and waterways and American control through a set of alliances has been at the center. That second most important prong is defending and supporting Israel, protecting it from international consequences um, for its actions in terms of settlement of the West Bank and Gaza, uh, using or, or supporting a peace process that has enabled that territorial expansion, uh, maintaining the so-called two-state solution to preserve the status quo while Israel has effectively undermined self-determination for Palestinians, uh, and then provide different kinds of ad hoc alignments in the region to protect Israel when uh, when you know that cover peace process and so forth begins to fail. So at the moment, that is the sort of um, brokering of this alliance with Saudi Arabia and the Emirates, which has which is tacit but is increasingly explicit in the framing of the region, both by the United States and also by the Israelis themselves and the Gulf. The third important prong is preventing adversaries from dominating the region, and this includes external adversaries, China, Russia or internal regional hegemons that are outside of the U.S. sphere of influence, like Iran. And this also means pragmatically supporting pro-American regimes, whether they're authoritarian or not. So the basic objectives that have taken pre precedence in the region have been access to oil, waterways, defending Israel, and preventing adversaries from dominating the region with a consequence of supporting pro-American regimes, whatever their character. These have been um, tested in the last 15 years or 20 years by a set of developments. First, um, the September 11th attacks produced a kind of counterterrorism paradigm, a brief neoconservative turn that you touched on a moment ago that imagined remaking the region ideologically uh, and that produced the Iraq war. But very quickly, you had a return to greater pragmatism. So for example, the September 11th attacks did not produce a rethink about the alignment with the Gulf, notwithstanding um, the fact that the many of those who engaged in the attacks were um, themselves from the Gulf. Uh, and then of course, with the failure of the Iraq war, you had a return to um, support for strongman rule, um, you know, and this is not just the Bush administration. This is clearly also the case with the Obama administration and now the Trump administration. Um, you pursue some counterterrorism strategies. So, for example, the strategy against the Islamic State. 
but you largely commit yourself to a set of tactics, the goal of which is to contain this particular, let's call it strategy, to contain this particular terrorist um, actor or unit, but without any broader rethink of what the position of the U.S. is in general to the region, therefore without any medium-term strategy for avoiding a replication of the threat. We go after al-Qaeda and then we produce or we we find ourselves confronted with an Islamic state. We go after the Islamic state. There isn't a medium-term strategy for what happens when that replicates itself again. Uh, but you return to the this kind of uh, pragmatism. And of course, when the Iraq war unleashes the logics of sectarianism that we saw, in some ways, the basic pragmatism leads to an abetting of that sectarianism by the Bush administration, um, which entrenched an adversarial approach to Iran in the wake of the Iraq war, partly to appease Gulf allies that were unnerved by that expansion of the sphere of influence. And then you have the second thing. So the first was the September 11th attacks. The second is the Arab uprisings, which introduced a new and sort of unexpected dynamic of popular self-determination that had long been counted out in the region. This was not something um, that was expected as long as America supported sort of the authoritarian strongmen of a pro-American um, alliance. There was no expectation that domestic unrest was going to unseat the stability of those authoritarians. So what was then the American response to the uprisings? It was completely predictably to support allies and use the opportunity um, to flip adversaries, as I've already touched on, as we touch on in the piece. So it's a mix of pragmatism towards allies, continued support for strongmen, together with a kind of ideological interventionism and the use of the language of human rights, democracy, et cetera, and the memorable framing of President Obama, that American values stand with the dignity of the vendor and not the power of the despot. But of course, this is only true in places where either that's already foregone, so of course, the uprising in Tunisia had not been anticipated and was completed without very, I mean, without any particular intervention from the U.S. or other Western actors. Uh, and where it's where geopolitically cost-free. Exactly. So you can flip adversary. And in Libya, you can hope that adversaries are going to be flipped in places like Syria at a low cost to the United States through indirect support for regional allies. Uh, and then places like Egypt and Bahrain, um, the uprisings are opportunities, in fact, to prop up allies, whether that means the initial support for the Mubarak regime, famously of the Obama administration, or the later support for Sisi's coup in Egypt. Um, and several of the proponents of that position have survived into the Trump administration from the Obama administration, notably James Mattis. Um, and then there's the conflict case. in Yemen, which is essentially just right. a, favor, a favor to Saudi Arabia. And so this just comes to the point about the uprisings, which is America's traditional allies felt deeply destabilized by the combination of the Iraq war and its consequences for expanding Iran's sphere of influence and the Arab uprisings effect of calling the stability of regional authoritarianism into question. And of course, this specifically concerned Israel and the Gulf states and Egyptian military partners of the United States. And what this has meant is that the United States has had to really double down on um, helping those actors, and in the case of Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, this has meant um, helping them in their regional competition against Iran, and that has led directly to uh, what we're seeing in Yemen, and and indeed, for that matter, before Yemen, in, in the sort of very strong intervention on the part of the Saudis in Bahrain. So then mm -hmm. what does the grand strategy look like from Bush through Trump? 
just to, to summarize, um, you know, continuous access and control of regional assets um, in terms of oil and waterways, defense and support of Israel, preventing adversaries from dominating the region, supporting pro-American strongmen, and then with the Arab uprisings twist and the aftermath of the Iraq War, um, which itself is an extension of the sort of American strategy post 9-11, you had a sense of destabilization amongst American allies that have meant the United States has had to double up on support for their strategy. And in the case of the Trump administration, the America is now completely aligned with that strategy with respect to Iran, whether in Syria or in Yemen, and to, of course, absolutely terrifying effect. The question then from our perspective is, you know, what is an alternative? Like, what would it look like to really think through um, a reorientation to the region um, you know, from the left. That was part one of a two-part interview with Asla Bali, and we'll be posting part two in a few days. Asla Bali is a professor of law and the faculty director of the Promise Institute for Human Rights at the UCLA School of Law. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that, if the emancipation of the working classes requires their fraternal concurrence, how are they to fulfill that great mission with a foreign policy in pursuit of criminal designs, playing upon national prejudices, and squandering in piratical wars the people's blood and treasure? While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week, usually twice a week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. If it's an iTunes, you can leave us a glowing review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. What also does that is you telling your friends about the show. Please make propaganda for us. And also do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this thing going strong. Even a few bucks a month is a big help. <laughs>